Welcome to theories of the third kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. The other host joining me today is Danielson. Yo, what's up? Now, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that no AI programs were used or harmed in the creation of this episode. The research for this show and all of its work was created solely by humans. If you would like to support the show, then there are a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways to do that is through Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 178 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. Now, to see this full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com and click on the Patreon episodes tab. And there you will see the entire list of Patreon exclusive episodes that we have published. And all of them are ad free. Also, today we added another Patreon exclusive episode, which is a Theories Thursday in which we cover grimoires and the exorcism of George Lukens. So you get access to both of those episodes as well as all the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you'd still like to help us out, then feel free to leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, Ghosts, Illuminati members, underground, loads of people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the lesser key of Solomon, and the 72 demons. Now, how this episode will go today is that we'll talk a little bit about the story of King Solomon, and then we'll get into the lesser key of Solomon. And we each have selected two demons to talk about. And after that, we got some strange facts and findings we're going to go over. And then we'll wrap everything up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. Thousands of years ago, ancient texts written by a king unveiled a realm of arcane knowledge in summoning rituals. Its pages adorned with names that invoke both fascination and fear. Within this mysterious manuscript lie the secrets of the 72 demons, entities with names that resonate through centuries of occult tradition. Some call it a gateway to hell, an unholy pact with demonic entities, or even a way to access forbidden knowledge and power. Do these ancient texts hold the keys to commanding supernatural forces, or is it a mirror 
reflecting the depths of the human psyche and its fascination with the forbidden. In this exploration of ancient mysticism, we unlock ancient secrets, delving into a realm where the boundaries between light and darkness blur, and where the pursuit of hidden knowledge treads close to the edge of the abyss. This is The Lesser Key of Solomon and the 72 Demons. So to start off this episode today, instead of us diving right into the demons, we figured we could give you a little history lesson. So as we researched into different demons, we started to wonder, where did all of these writers of these grimoires get their information from? Which, by the way, a grimoire is the name of a book that typically includes instructions on how to perform magical spells and how to summon these entities and or demons. Imagine it sort of like a, a recipe book for spells, which I cover today on the Patreon episode, Theories Thursday, Grimoires. Grimoires. All right, so like I said, we were reading these grimoires, aka books, and learning about different demons and how to summon them. That is when we began to wonder, you know, all this demonic shit that has been written in history about demons, their descriptions, the seals to summon them, and all that other stuff, where did that originate from? Well, we learned that almost all of that information about specific demons, their seals, how to summon them, and all of that came from the Lesser Key of Solomon, also known as Limageton. But some people call it the Lesser Key of Solomon, others call it Limageton. Anyway, so Limageton is a book that was anonymously put together in the mid-17th century. The individual who put it together used information from several centuries prior. It includes everything there is to know about specific demons, their descriptions, how to summon them, etc. And all of that information is based on King Solomon and his story about how he got a ring that he used to control demons with and extract information from them. And that is called the Testament of Solomon. So it's actually three books. There's the Key of Solomon, Lesser Key of Solomon, and then the Testament of Solomon. Now to start off this history lesson, we're going to talk about who King Solomon was, along with how he was able to get control of these demons and extract information from them. So Dan, can you start that off for us and tell us a little bit about old King Solomon Ding Dong? Of course. Now, before we do dive into this, I have something to state. I know we do not talk about religion or politics. However, nearly all evidence for Solomon's life and his reign comes from the Bible. With that being said, throughout the years, archaeologists and historians have yet to uncover any textual reference to King Solomon outside of the Bible. This, of course, makes many individuals question if he even existed. However, most scholars accept the history of King Solomon and his reign at face value pretty much based on the plausibility of the Bible's account. I figured we needed to state that right at the beginning, but regardless if he existed or not, this is not really the main discussion. We just wanted to make you all aware of the debate around his life. Yeah, during the theories part, we can dive deeper into the discussion if, you know, he existed or not. But we'll save that for later. And instead, let's hop into King Solomon's life and tell you about how he supposedly controlled some demons and shit. All right, so who is Solomon? Well. 
Solomon was born around 1010 BCE. He was the 10th son of King David, who at the time was the second king of ancient United Israel. Now, just an FYI, King David is the same David from the story of David and Goliath. If you don't know about that, we'll give you a quick summary. So David wasn't born in royalty. He was just a shepherd and a talented musician. This motherfucker could play the harp like no one else. <laughs> now, at the time, the king of ancient Israel was King Saul, and he was beefing with the neighboring tribe, the Philistines. Well, around the same time, a prophet named Samuel came across David and was like, Yo, man, come with me to King Saul's court. So together, they went there, and when they arrived, Samuel was like, Hey, David, you see that harp over there? Go play that shit for King Saul and show him your skills, my dog. And he did. David played that harp, and King Saul stood there and was like, Hot damn, it's the Saga Bottom Boys. <laughs> okay, he didn't say that, all right? But he really was impressed with David's harp playing skills. So King Saul told David, Hey, man, God sometimes, you know, he messes with me and he vexes me with evil spirits. The only thing that can cure that is your harp playing. So I need you to stay around. Oh, also, I'm going to appoint you as my armor bearer. So carry my armor around and play some damn tunes with that harp. Nice. Now, you remember how we told y'all about the neighboring tribe, the Philistines, and how King Saul had beef with them? Well, these Philistines showed up to battle the king again. However, this time was different. The Philistines said, we aren't going to send our entire army. Instead, we're going to send one person to challenge the best fighter in Israel. The Israelite warriors all sort of mocked and giggled at them. They're like, yeah, right. Then all of a sudden, out from the army of the Philistines came forth a man taller than any of them. A giant named Goliath, who was carrying a huge bronze spear. Once the Israelites saw him, they were like, uh, f*** that, we're not going to fight his ass. Now at the time, David was delivering food to his brothers who were part of the Israelite warriors. David had seen Goliath step forward and was actually mocking him out loud in front of his brothers. King Saul overheard David mocking Goliath and was like, David, you want to fight him? David said, sure, why not? He grabbed his sling and picked up a stone from the riverbed. Everyone was watching David, you know, sort of confused. Then David yeeted that stone at Goliath and struck him in the head, killing him. The Philistines were like, what the hell? And they fled. After that, King Saul placed David at the head of his army, offered his daughters up to him, in which he ended up marrying the youngest, and then eventually became the second king of Israel. Even though King Saul tried to have David assassinated and tried killing him by accidentally throwing a spear at him while he was playing the harp, not once, but twice. So, yeah. That is the story of David and Goliath and how David became king, pretty much in a nutshell. Which, of course, like we mentioned earlier, King David is the father of Solomon. And Solomon was the 10th son of David. Now, Solomon's father, King David, ended up dying in 961 BCE from natural causes and was buried in Jerusalem. Before his death, David told his son Solomon, Keep the charge of the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, for you are a wise man. It is worth mentioning that Solomon didn't automatically become the next king of Israel. There was some drama with his brother, 
family members, other generals, etc. However, we don't have time to go that deep into it. So instead, just know that Solomon went and murked his brother, and boom, he ended up becoming the third king of Israel. Damn. Mm-hmm. As king, Solomon was renowned for his wisdom, his prolific writings, and his building accomplishments. He reigned for 40 years in one of the highest and most prosperous periods in Israel's history, called by many the Golden Age of Israel. King Solomon controlled a lot of trade routes, which was accomplished by alliances that he had made with other various nations and tribes, through them gifting various wives to him. Yes, you heard me right gifting wives to him. Solomon was said to have had over 700 wives and over 300 concubines, which a concubine is a woman who lives with a man but has a lower status than his wife or wives. Now, I know this might seem weird, but back in the day, marriage alliances were the most common way for rulers to attempt to secure peaceful relationships with potential enemies. Anyway, so an important part of this entire story and us mentioning King Solomon, is him building a temple. Right before his father died, Solomon promised his father, King David, that he would build a temple that the Ark of the Covenant would stay in. So in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign is when he decided to start the construction of this temple. It took a total of seven years to finally finish building the temple in which King Solomon celebrated by sacrificing 22,000 oxes and 120,000 sheep. Damn, that's a lot of food. I wonder if they ate them. They had to have eaten them. Just can't slaughter them, just let them rot. And they're like, damn, what's that that stinks? Oh yeah, slaughtered a lot of animals. Now we're starving. Good job. Now this temple was top of the line for that time. The architectural design of it was modeled after the tabernacle that had housed the Ark of the Covenant for a long-ass time. We're talking decades, if not centuries. So even though this temple was modeled after the tabernacle, they decided to change up a few things. For example, the temple was double the size of the tabernacle. The temple was over 100 feet long by 40 feet wide by 60 feet high with outer doors of ivory. It was built mainly from stone with cedar paneling to hide all masonry, which was overlaid with gold. The inside of the temple was decorated with elaborate carvings of flowers. There were gold lampstands, an altar of incense, also called the golden altar, and two bronze pillars, among other embellishments. So after the temple was completed, Solomon had the Ark of the Covenant finally moved and placed it in its specialized chamber on the most western end of the temple called the Holy of Holies. This chamber was a perfect 20 by 20 by 20 foot cube and was the most sacred room that no one besides the chief priest could enter, which was on the Day of Atonement without dying. 400 years later, in 587 BC, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II after the siege of Jerusalem. So that right there was the story of King Solomon and his temple. Now we're going to jump back real quick and talk about the construction of this temple. So like we mentioned, this temple took seven years to build and King Solomon had a lot of individuals working on it. It was during this time that he would encounter his first demon and learn how to control them, which we are going to get into that story right now. So during the building of this temple, the chief architect, 
had his little son working on the temple as well. King Solomon took a liking to this boy and was paying him double and even giving him double the food rations, more than all of the other workers. Well, King Solomon started to notice that this little boy was growing skinnier and skinnier each day he saw him, so he commanded him to come see him in his court. Once the boy arrived, King Solomon said, and we quote, Do I not love thee more than all the artisans who are working in the temple of God? Do I not give thee double wages and a double supply of food? How is it that day by day and hour by hour thou growest thinner? Every night, after we release from our work, I go home to rest. After sunset, when I lay down, an evil demon named Ornius comes to me and takes away half of my pay and half of my food. Is that it? Is that all he does? He just takes away your food? Eh, not really. Sometimes he takes hold of my right hand and sucks my thumb. What? He sucks your thumb? God, what a weirdo. I'm going to have to see him. So it was at that point that the king dismissed the boy. Go on now, get. Go back home. Okay. And told him that he would figure this out. Shortly thereafter, he went into the temple of God and prayed with all his soul, night and day, that the demon be delivered into his hands and that he gain authority over him. According to Solomon, his prayers were answered because Archangel Michael came down from the heavens and gave him a ring which had a seal consisting of an engraved stone. Michael told Solomon, Listen up, King Solomon, son of David. The Lord God sent me here, and I have a gift for your ass. Here is a ring. With this you can lock up all the demons of the earth, male and female. And guess what? They will help you build up Jerusalem, including that badass temple you're building. So take this ring, wear it, and go command demons to help you. Michael then either vanished or flew back up into the sky, or, you know, whatever he does to appear and disappear. We don't actually know, but I like to imagine that he threw down some magic powder and was like, ninja style, I'm gone. And he vanished like David Blaine. Magic, man. Anyway, so it was this ring here that allowed King Solomon to control the demon Ornius, who was messing with that kid that King Solomon liked. Now, King Solomon would go on to use the ring to control a total of 72 demons to pretty much help him build that temple. It was during this time that he also learned about each demon. He drew their sigils, he learned how to summon them, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that right there is the backstory of how this information came to be. It was all through King Solomon getting that ring. Now, before we get into some of these specific demons, we are first going to talk about some magical requirements that Solomon wrote down before trying to summon up these demons. So the first thing that we are going to discuss is the magical circle. Now, this magical circle is a large nine-foot circle that has certain divine names written inside of it, along with a snake curled up inside of it and four stars around it, one on each side. This magical circle was created by King Solomon, and he drew it on the ground, and he stood inside of it as protection against the evil spirits and demons that he was dealing with. And we have a photograph of this magical circle, as well as all of the other sigils, pictures of the demons, and all that good stuff, and all of these images you can find on our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and just click on today's episode, and they will be right there for you. The next thing is the magical triangle of Solomon. 
This magical triangle is three feet across and is to be made at two feet distance from the magical circle that we previously just talked about. The triangle has an inner circle with three words on each corner of the inner part of the triangle and then three on the outer part of the triangle. The triangle itself should be placed toward the quarter where unto the spirit belongeth. And just like the magical circle, we have a photograph of the magical triangle and then we actually have the orientation of how it should be placed along with the magical circle. Now, the next thing you need is the hexagram of Solomon. This is a circle with a hexagram inside of it, a T cross in the middle, and five Maltese crosses on the outside of it. This should be drawn on the parchment of a calf's skin and then worn on the front of your white robe and then covered with a cloth of fine linen, white and pure. Now, once you summon an entity or demon, you show them this hexagram of Solomon and this will compel them to take human shape, form, and be obedient. So those right there are the main magical requirements that Solomon wrote down before trying to summon up these demons. There are a few others, but they were minor ones compared to these actual main ones. Yeah, and we figured these three main ones are the ones that we need to know. All right, so now that we have discussed the magical requirements, I guess it's time for us to talk about some demons. So when it comes to these entities, there is kind of like a hierarchy, all right? And it goes in this specific order. There are nine kings, 23 dukes, seven princes, 15 marquises, five earls, one knight, and then 12 presidents. And that's the order they go in. Dang, only one knight? Yeah, that's all I need. I guess so. So this is the part where Aaron and I have each picked out two demons and are going to take turns discussing them. Yep. All right. So the first one that I picked is quite an interesting one, I think, at least. So let me first ask this, Aaron. What are your thoughts about Cupid? Cupid as in the little, I guess it's like a boy? The little thing with the bow. During Valentine's Day? Yes. I really don't have a specific feeling toward it, whatever it is. I mean, I think it's just an advertising tactic for corporations to advertise Valentine's Day, which is unnecessary, but whatever. All right. Let me ask this then. What do you think about the fact that he makes people fall in love with his arrows? Oh. <laughs> it's kind of weird that this thing is making other people fall in love that really, I guess, don't want to, or maybe they do. I don't know. True. Yeah. What do you think about it? I do think it's kind of weird because it seems like Cupid's making the decision for you. Is that what your demon is? is Cupid? I didn't know it was one of the 72 demons. Well, the demon ain't Cupid itself, but pretty much what he does is kind of like Cupid. Oh. Yeah, it's because... You know, finding love can be tough, but just like Cupid, this demon supposedly does the same thing. He can make people fall in love. The demon Salos, also known as Zabos, is a fallen angel and considered to be the 19th of the 72 spirits of Solomon. He appears as a handsome-looking man with a crown of a duke while in a full suit of armor riding on the back of a damn crocodile. Crocodile? Crocodile. What is he, Steve Irwin? Could be. He is considered to be the Cupid of the demonic world to where he is able to make people fall in love and can incite lust and passion in the object of the person's desire. I know what you're thinking. Well, shit, he's a demon, so he must be doing this in some weird demonic way, right? You know, demons are supposedly bad. Mm -hmm. Well, from what I've read, Salos, he's one of those weird demons. He's like an outcast, but yet he's part of the army. He's like the sweet and sensitive demon spirit. 
which is very odd to say. It is. It is because that's not very common at all. No, it's not. It's very odd. Even though he is a duke and commands 30 legions of demons, which I read, each legion consists of 6,666 demons. So this Duke Salos, he commands... Quick maths. Or close to 200,000. Damn. Yeah. But the weird thing is, he is more of a lover than a fighter. Like I said, this thing just sounds so weird. Now, his goal is to encourage the blossoming of relationships through whatever means necessary. And that's where it kind of starts to sound bad. He doesn't go about it in the best of ways, but he will encourage fidelity between two above all else. And like, no matter how much I scoured the interwebs for information on this demon Cupid, Duke Salos, the only terrible thing about him is how to summon him. It seems like you need to own his pendant and then lots of blood. Blood from who? Yourself or the person you want to get to love you? I think yourself. Okay. Because I think you're wanting him to like help you fall in love. Oh, okay. So it's not a specific spell towards someone. It's him finding you love. Correct. Okay. Now, like I said, it's just confusing that he, he's a leader of 200,000 soldiers, you say, demon soldiers. Mm-hmm. But yet, he's a lover. He's not a fighter. And I think that's the bad part about it is like, if you do summon him to find love, it might not even be your soulmate or anything like that. He's just going to probably pick some random person and be like, you know what? I think, I think you'll love them. Damn, I love you, Dan. I love you too, Aaron. All right, thank you, Duke Salos. You're good. But uh, yeah, so that's the demon I first demon I picked. You know, it's a short one, but he is the 19th of the 72, you know, demons of Solomon. I don't know. It was just so weird that he is not as evil as like the rest of them. They made him out to be a lover. A lover. And no matter how much you scour the internet, you won't really see anything bad about him at mm. all, which is mind-blowing. It seems like your demon that you just talked about is very similar to the first demon that I'm going to talk about. Oh. So are you familiar with Citri? Citri sounds familiar, but I didn't know it was a demon. Mm-hmm. This demon Citri is a great prince, and he rules over 60 legions. Oh, wow. That's double Duke Salos. When he is summoned, he appears as a handsome man with the head of a leopard and the wings of a griffin. No crocodile? No crocodile. He doesn't have any crocodiles. He's just got a, a leopard head and a wings of a griffin. And if you look at that, he ain't got no dick. He got some long-ass toes. God oh. dang, look at that. Look how long his big toe is. What are those? Jesus. All right. So he is the demon of lovers. So it obviously seems like these demon of lovers, of love, they appear handsome, but yet... They have some weird thing about them. I guess like this one has a leopard head and wings, but Salos just wrote a crocodile. Yeah, which is just as weird. Yeah. So Citri, his ability is that he can make any man and woman love each other. But it is a different kind of love. The type of love that Citri causes is an uncontrollable passion and lust between individuals. Now, he is most often summoned up by women. Oh. However, he is able to be summoned by a man who can make any woman he desires open all of their secrets to him and their entire soul, according to Citri. Mm. So Citri is very hard to control for the magician who is summoning him. This is due to Citri being a very good hypnotizer. And regardless if you are a man or a woman, if you are not trained well, 
then you have a good chance of falling under his charm and ultimately under his control. Now, another thing worth mentioning is that when he is summoned, Citri admits a fragrance that increases the libido in women. Ooh. Yeah. So ultimately, if you are brave enough, you can summon this Prince of Hell to help you with love, but you have to be careful. Your mind has to be strong, and you must be clear and honest. Otherwise, this demon will control you instead of your loved one. So I do have a picture of the sigil of Citri that is used to call him forth. And the best time to call him is in the middle of May, with the title being Prince, the direction being North, the element is Earth, the planet is Jupiter, the metal is tin, the color is blue, the aroma is cedar, and zodiac is cancer. The specific words to summon him are Larak, Alafor, Vefa, Citri. Holy shit, what is that? I mean, I didn't have the sigil down. I have none of that down, so. There you go. If you want to summon him, good luck. Damn. So even though you say it's like women that summon him the most, I would honestly think it would be a man doing it just for the fact that he emits a fragrance that increases the libido in women, which that would make it easier to hypnotize them, wouldn't it? Yep. Damn, these demons and their versions of love. Yeah. All right, so let's get into this next demon. What do you got for us, Dan? Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So the next demon I got, he's not really part of the 72 original demons. He's part of the lesser ones than, than those 72 originals. Correct. Okay. So the demon that I chose for the second one is Karanzan. If you listen to the Aleister Crowley Crowley episode, then you would have already heard the mention of this demon. Now, we didn't really talk about him too much. I think there was like one little part in it. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, you know, we're talking demons. Why not dive a little bit deeper into Karanzan? So Karanzan, or the Thalema demon, or the dweller in the abyss. By the way, the reason they call him the Thalema demon is because of Aleister Crowley, or Crowley, whichever way you pronounce it. His religion he created is Thalema. Correct. Yep. Now, this demon is a shape-shifting demon and is considered to the practitioners of Thalema to be the first and deadliest of all of the powers of evil. That is because Karanzan is what they say is the metaphysical contrary to the whole process of magic. With a K. With a K. Since it yearns for a form that it can claim as its own, this is due to the fact that it doesn't truly have a form of its own. It is a void, just like the abyss that it resides in. So Karanzan will take on the form in the likeness of someone the person that summoned him may consider provocative. So whoever that person finds very, very attractive, Karanzan will take on that form to fool you. That is why Karanzan is at the center of many, and I mean many, sex magic rituals. The magic with the K. Damn. Now with Crowley Crowley summoning Karanzan in Africa, well, in Algeria, he described it appearing as an old man, what? then a serpent, and even into Crowley's likeness. <laughs> Crowley likes snakes. I'm a snack. I'm a slither snack. Oh, I like that. Come here. So yeah, it seemed like Crowley had some weird fetishes, you know. Mm-hmm. But like we say, no judgment, but that's kind of weird. Anyway, Karanzan also took on the form of a French female escort that included Crowley's companion, Victor, to try and seduce Victor. So 
the French uh, escort was very provocative to his companion, Victor, and mm. decided to change into that to try to fool him. Oh. Now, with that being said, Crowley believed that if Victor would have done the nasty with Karanzan in this form, he would have freed Karanzan from being bound by the triangle. So I guess that was a good thing that he did not do that with the Karanzan. Yeah. Because then they would not be able to control or defeat. The elite. That's it. The reason Crowley decided to summon this dweller of the abyss is because Karanzan is the sole inhabitant of the chasm human magicians must cross to attain ultimate knowledge. Those who believe they are prepared to face Karanzan and are capable of abandoning their ego will be able to move beyond the abyss, achieving the title of Master of the Temple. That's a pretty cool title. That sounds like something off of Legend of Zelda. It does. For those who are not prepared to handle Karanzan and do the ritual anyway, well, they're pretty much wiped out. Crowley decided to summon Karanzan, and then he slipped into a trance, and he started to recite the Call of Aether. In turn, he was able to bind the demon within a triangle surrounded by two magical barrier circles. He then entered the triangle and battled against the demon, defeating it after a long and lengthy debate and struggle. What did they, like, wrestle? I'm guessing so. Hi, my name's Al Bashamboni. <laughs> Let's wrestle. Get the baby oil, I'm ready. This led Crowley writing the name Babylon, not Babylon with a Y in the middle, but Babylon with an A, so B-A-B-A-L-O-N. Okay. He wrote the name Babylon in the sand with his holy ring to signify that he had overcome Karanzan. Though many believe that Crowley actually didn't succeed in defeating Karanzan and that he was actually possessed by it, that Crowley lived out the remainder of his life feeling the demonic effects of Karanzan, which is why he died of bronchitis caused by his pleurisy and myocardial degeneration. Anyway, that is Karanzan on the occult side of things. But on the complete opposite of that, Karanzan is considered to be the demon of anti-magic, anti-matter, and anti-life. Karanzan is considered to be a force that seeks to disperse and dissolve all things physical, mental, and spiritual. Similar to the name Dweller of the Abyss, it's a metaphysical black hole. It despises order and rational thought, also destroying the belief of anything religious. Karanzan can cause impotence, infirmity, and decay in matter, as well as causing darkness and despair in the souls of those who summon it. Damn, why would anybody try to summon it? Yeah, I don't know who would want to summon this unless they wanted to destroy the world, which, I mean, there are people out there like that. Yeah. But I tried to find, like, some firsthand accounts of anyone actually messing with Karanzan to, like, try to get their point of view from it. And honestly, there's a lot of people out there like me trying to find that answer. Because I saw on, like, Reddit and other sites, people were asking, like, hey, has anyone actually summoned Karanzan? And, you know, what were you trying to do? What happened? Crowley did. Crowley did. And he beat him, and he did it for sex magic, though. Little freak. <laughs> but yeah. But then I remembered Dr. John D. and Edward Kelly, who said that they had an Anakian angel reveal themselves to them. So Karanzan was first mentioned by Dr. John D. and Edward Kelly many of hundreds of years before Crowley did. D. and Kelly had decided to do a ritual to summon a being in which they supposedly summoned the archangel Gabriel. They wanted to ask some questions, and one of the questions was if anyone in the world still spoke the angelic tongue. Gabriel told them that Karanzan envied God's newest creation, man. So the demon worked to drive Adam from the Garden of Eden 
and into the world, where he lost his innocence and the ability to speak angelic, which is Hanakian today, which mm. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. I wonder what that would have sounded like. I mean, you think about what angels are supposedly supposed to look like. Like, what is it? Like wings with a bunch of eyes and stuff? Yeah, wings with a bunch of eyes and then like stuff twirling around it or something like that. They look terrifying. They look extremely terrifying. But yeah, so that right there is the demon Karanzan or Zabos or the Dweller of the Abyss. And he was previously mentioned in the Aleister Crowley episode. And I figured, hey, why not go into him and see what he was about and see kind of why Crowley wanted to summon him. I like that. So I guess he pretty much went for the ultimate knowledge, maybe some sex magic stuff, you know. He wanted to be called the master, but not master of the temple. Or Bader. Master Bader, yeah. Damn. Well, I like that, Dan. I did find one thing interesting. There's a band, I guess, called Karanzan. Mm. And their site was pretty interesting. Let's take a look at their site, karanzan.org. They got some music. They have music. What is their music like? Let's take a listen. We're going we're gonna to play two seconds of their music right now, but it's only two seconds, so don't copyright us. Sounds a little scary. I'm guessing it's supposed to sound like the abyss, like you being absorbed into the void and such. Okay. Well, they nailed it. They did nail it. But if you look at their, going onto their webpage and you go to their about me or about us. We'll have a link to it on our website. What does it say? The about us says, you'll know soon enough if meant to. Right now, Karanzan is watching you determining whether you have a good reason to know. And the Karanazites are still messing about behind that xenodimensional curtain, deciding how best to tell you. Kind of, kind of weird. Yeah, a little bit. Well, good for them. That's pretty much all I found on Karanzan, really. Well, thank you. I enjoyed that. I did too. Now I know a little bit more about what Crowley was actually summoning. Weird-ass man. All right. So the last demon that we're going to talk about. Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. It's our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. All right. So the last demon that we're going to talk about is a little different. I wanted to pick one out that could be summoned in October, just in case some of you wanted to do that, okay? Because the previous one, you couldn't. Not advising that you should, but no. we can't tell you what to do. Exactly. So this demon is Merrick's. We checked the pronunciation probably like 30 times. Marax, Marix. It looks like Marax, but they say it's pronounced Marix. Marix. So he is the great president and Earl of Hell, and he rules over 30 legions of spirits. When Marix is summoned, he appears as a bull with a creepy human head, and he will be able to speak with you. So we do have a, <laughs> a photograph of a bull with a man face on it. He has a goatee. He does. He's like, hey, how's it going? Anyway, so if granted, Merricks will bestow upon the magician who summoned him access to some of the most sacred information that only he has access to. He will teach you astronomy, and he will even share the mysteries of the universe, including how it was created. Ooh. Merricks is also known for being a liberal scientist, 
He can grant you relations with good familiars and help you get new friends. He can also teach you all the virtues of herbs and precious stones. He also has access to information regarding secret hidden properties of all existing herbs on earth. Now, if you are a really good, advanced, and experienced magician who summons up Merrick's and respectfully asks for his help, he will give you famous and smart familiars who will help you with all of your rituals and wishes. Now, in regards to beginner magicians, it is said never to summon this demon. This is due to him being extremely scary looking. It usually freaks out an inexperienced magician, and Merrick's sort of like sees that as a sign of disrespect. He's like, put some respect on my name. Who laughing at? <laughs> yeah, he is huge on respect. And then he will punish the magician. So yeah, I advise everyone to stay away from him, but that's just my opinion. Ultimately, you could do whatever you want. So I do have the sigil of Merrick's and what is used to call him forth. Now the best time to call him forth is between October 13th and the 22nd, during the day. His title is the President and the Earl. The direction is north, the element is earth, the planet is mercury, the metal is copper and silver, mercury, iron, and plutonium. Good luck finding that. Mm. The color is red, the aroma is blood of the dragon, and the zodiac is Libra. The specific words to summon him are Kaimen Verfa Merax. So there you go. That's how you summon him. Good luck finding the keys of the universe and having a big old bull in your room. The aroma is blood of the dragon. Komodo dragon? I'm a dragon. <laughs> I have no idea. Sea dragon? I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm a snake dragon. So that right there are the demons that Daniel and I have picked out. Now we're going to transition into some of the strange facts and findings. All right. So the first strange fact and finding that we have is an actual image of all of these 72 sigils of these demons. We've already shown two of them with Marex and Citri, which Duke Salos is on here. He's the 19th one. Then you have all of the others, all the other 69. <laughs> nice. Yeah, if you look at them, those are some weird-ass sigils, though. Yeah, weird symbols. They look like uh, Egyptian, um, what are those? Uh, hieroglyphics. They, yeah, they look like hieroglyphics. Hmm. See, where's Salos at? Where's 19? There he is. Oh, it looks like three crosses on a cup. Interesting. Yep. And like we've been saying, all the images and links from today's episode will be on our website for anyone that wants to take a look at it. All right. So the next strange fact and finding that we have is about grimoires. So as we were looking into these demons and the Lesser Key of Solomon, we began looking at other grimoires. And then we started looking into the history of them. And we learned that the history of grimoires goes all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia times. The earliest known written magical incantations come from ancient Mesopotamia, pretty much modern day Iraq which is where they have been found inscribed on clay tablets that archaeologists excavated and dated them to be between 5th and 4th centuries BC. So there's some old-ass grimoires, magical spells written on some clay tablets. And that's just a little taste of our Patreon episode because I go way deeper into it. 
and grimoires and the history of them. And I've actually picked out six of them that I talked about. Really good. Really, really good. Oh, yeah. Even though you said that you would probably find one and buy it, I probably wouldn't. Oh, they're very hard to come by. Like an authentic one is almost impossible. I think the Vatican actually has one. They do. They had it out to show for people, but then they just realized like, oh, this is putting off some bad vibes. So we're just going to put this away now. So they have it like hidden in their vault somewhere. You think they get it and run around? Uh, look what I got. Pull pranks on each other. I guarantee you they probably do the, use it to punish people. Mm. So do you want me to tell you about this last strange fact I'm finding? Tell me about this last one that you found. So this last strange fact and finding is something that I stumbled upon while we were researching this topic. I came across an 85-minute video on YouTube that was originally on DVD, but then they uploaded it to YouTube, and it's a documentary titled The Magic, with a K, of Solomon. Now, this documentary was written by anthropologist and ceremonial magician Carol Polk Runyon, who is the Magister of America's oldest continually operating magical lodge, the Ordo Templi Astralis, OTA. So the first part of this video has Polk Runyon talking about the history of Western magic with illustrations of graphics and displays. Now, everything he is talking about is based upon his own research and experiments, as well as visions of spirits obtained by magicians in medieval times and how they were subjective in hypnotic rather than hysterical hallucinations, which a lot of people assume they were. Now, the documentary goes on with him showing how to do spells and other shit. And honestly, it's pretty damn good. The guy's voice is as smooth as silk, so it's easy to watch, and it's pretty informative. But we'll have a link to it up on our website. Do they actually have the full 85 minutes on YouTube for free? Yeah, for free. Oh, wow. And this dude is still alive. Still casting spells. Dang, he must be an immortal. The whole thing is on YouTube. It's great. I suggest people go take a look at it. I'll have to watch it. Maybe I can learn some spells. Just kidding. I don't want to cast no damn spells. So that was our last strange fact and finding. And now we are going to get into our own personal thoughts and theories. So the first thing I'm going to ask you, Dan, do you think King Solomon truly existed? I remember you bringing this up and I was thinking to myself, King Solomon only existed in the Bible. And I'm not saying that he's not real or anything like that. The only texts that historians and archaeologists have found that contain King Solomon is the Bible. Yeah. So what I was thinking was that this King Solomon did exist, possibly, but his name is not actually King Solomon. It was probably something else. And he was just like, if you're going to write me into the book, change my name. I don't want it you know, in there. So they ended up writing, making a pseudonym for him. That's why they have not found anything other than what's in the Bible on him. Hmm. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah, I can kind of see that. What do you think? I think he existed, but I think all the evidence of him has been dug up and hidden. Because why are they going to announce, hey, we found the remains of King Solomon? People are automatically going to say, where's his ring? Where is it at? But in the Testament of Solomon, he throws it in the ocean or a lake or something like that or a river, and a big fish comes up and swallows it. So let's go fishing. Have you ever seen the movie Big Fish? No. It's a very interesting movie. But is it like a cartoon? No. It's an actual movie. It has a 
what's the guy's name? He plays um, Obi-Wan in the newer Star Wars. I know y'all know this. I do not. Well, he's like the main actor in this movie. But at one point, he ends up throwing a ring into a lake and a fish eats it. And later on, he ends up having to, I think, catch the fish and make the fish cough up the ring again because he was going to use it to propose to his wife or his fiance. Hmm. Ian McGregor or whatever his name is? Yeah. Okay. Obi-Wan. Yeah, Obi-Wan. But yeah, that just reminded me of that. It's like he literally had to catch that fish again, then squeeze it, fight it, for it to spit out the ring. The one ring to rule them all. My precious. But no, if you haven't seen Big Fish, I, I actually suggest it. It was actually a pretty cool movie. It's like, I don't know, it's a lot of weird stuff in it. Hmm, I'll have to check it out. I'm also wanting to watch the Obi-Wan series. Oh, yeah. When does that come out? I think it's already out. I'm behind on the series. I'll have to check. Haven't had much time to watch any TV here lately. No. So do you have any other personal thoughts and theories behind these demons or the King Solomon or anything like that? I was just thinking that the only reason he exists in the Bible is possibly, like you said, like they, they like wiped everything clean on him so they couldn't find his body, could find the ring and stuff. Especially if they did have any historical records of him, it would definitely show how to summon demons. Like, I feel like they, if they did, they did wipe him out of history for that reason. Though you would only find it in like certain books, I guess. There's not, not a lot of evidence to prove he was real. Yeah, I agree. Well, if you or a loved one have summoned up a demon, or you know where King Solomon's ring is at, or if you caught a fish with a ring in it, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. So with that being said, do you have anything else you want to add to today's episode, Dan? Yeah. As we were researching this, of course, we always hear some weird sounds. <laughs> well, I saw something weird. We heard a weird sound outside in our backyard. Yep. And Dan went into the backyard and I went to the front and I leaned over the, the guardrail on the front porch and I looked down the driveway towards the backyard and Dan's vehicle was parked like backed up into the driveway and I could have sworn that I had seen a head standing on the other side of his vehicle hiding from Dan. Dan walks in front of his vehicle doesn't look in that direction but looks at me and I point at the back end of his vehicle because I could have sworn I seen a head kind of hiding and then it ducked down even more when Dan came close to it. I was yep. like oh shit here we go we're gonna have to fight a demon. Yep, I ended up going around the vehicle looking, looked under it and everything. Then freaked me out, man. The one part, one place I did not go was behind your garage. It was way too dark. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have any light. And I'm just like, if I walk back there, I'm not coming back. <laughs> Something's going to get me in that abyss. Yeah, we go back there and there's a demon. Got any games on your phone? Do the guy. Yay. I love you, daddy. Yeah. So a lot of weird things happened while we were researching this topic, but it, it was a great topic. I, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I, I love learning about interesting and weird things and the occult, mysticism, mysteries, the unknown. Yeah, even though it's spooky, I wouldn't really want to summon these demons, but it's, it is interesting to see why these people would want to summon these demons. Just the things that they can do for you and such. I agree. I agree. Which, you know, one thing I noticed, demons are supposed to like collect souls, right? I, I assume so. None of these, like when we looked into them, said anything about, I mean, I guess uh, Karanzan, if you fail to 
control him. He wipes you out, so I guess he takes your soul. But the rest of them, I mean, really didn't seem like they... Well, they hypnotize you and then control you. Oh, yeah, Citri. Mm-hmm. I know, but like Duke Salos, I couldn't find anything about him stealing your soul or anything. He's just like, yeah, he comes up and he's just like, hey, guys, I, you want to fall in love? I can make you fall in love with someone. Might not be your soulmate, but hey, it's someone. Yeah, and Citri's like, okay, you want this person to fall in love with you? I got you. Give me your soul. Yeah, and that big old Marex comes out and he's like a, a bull. <laughs> want some knowledge? All right. Well, with that being said, I guess that's the end of the episode today. I hope you all enjoyed the first episode of season six. And I hope you are also all prepared for the upcoming spooky episodes for October. That's right. Hey, you know what we do every October, every spooky season? Ghost stories. Yep. So if you have any ghost stories that you would like to share, you can email those ghost stories to us. You can send us an email and provide that story. Make sure it's less than three and a half minutes long when you read it out loud. And we will include it in our ghost stories episode. Hell yeah. All right. Well, with that being said, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for all of your support. You're all amazing. Every single one of you. So Dan, would you like to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. Boom. I'm a snake. I'm a little snake. Suck my demon wee wee.